Okay, so you are signed up for Doctrines of Man, Sin, and Angels. So if you weren't intending to be here, you can escape now. <laughs> Let's go ahead and start with prayer, and then we'll sort of run through what we're trying to do here. And uh, we'll get started. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness to us. We thank you for the far reach of the Christian scriptures, how it uh, gives us information about some of the uh, most uh, abstract and and, uh, uh, mysterious questions that we have about our role in the universe and and such. And Lord, I ask as we probe its depths for information about who we are and what we are like and and having discovered to our dismay that we're not uh, what we ought to be, how we might, uh, how that situation might be remedied. And Lord, we ask that it would be an encouragement for us, but also a time for instruction and uh, self-reflection, and also for uh, for uh, advance in our in our suitability to serve here in the church. In your name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you're coming in, grab you this. Okay. Let's go into a little bit of detail about what we're going to do. It's not a very long course description, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page, um, short as it is. So you can see here that the uh, course description is a systematic survey of three heads of systematic theology. It's systematic theology five, uh, which means there are four that went before it. And if you weren't here for those, there may be occasional references back to that that you just, uh, uh, you might have to roll with. But uh, nonetheless, this class stands alone on its own. You don't have to have the others in order to make sense of what we're doing here. Um doctrines of humanity, uh, or sometimes called anthropology, doctrine of sin, which we call hamartiology. These are derived from the Greek words for, for that. So the man doctrines of humanity or anthropology, the doctrine of sin, amartiology, and the study of angels, which has no fancy word other than angelology. And so we're going to put those in. It's really, it's really our, our emphasis is on the doctrines of man and sin. Uh, but it's one of those things we're trying to squeeze the angels in somewhere, and uh, it fit here. So that's. It's a little bit out of order, but uh, hopefully we'll spend at least a, a week or two talking about those. A special reference will be here to the image of God in man and what I call here the fourfold state of man. That's a, it's a, that's a phrase given to us by Thomas Boston, one of the uh, Puritans. Uh, talks about the four states of man. One, in his relative innocence, in his created state. Then in his fallen state of total depravity. Then in his regenerate state or reforming state, and then finally his glorified state, and of course we're all in that in that uh, sequence. 
And uh, hopefully, we've got all in front of us here, everyone who's in that regenerate state, and we'll talk about what that means. What, what are the implications of each of those states of being uh, that a person can find himself? Okay. Uh, we'll meet here from 7 to 8.15. Note that, 7 to 8.15. We won't be starting at 7.15. I know some of the programs here start at 7.15, uh, but we'll be starting here at 7, uh, just in order to get through uh, the material, and we'll run to approximately 8.15 each night, Wednesday evening, starting tonight through April 29th, and then there's a week off, I believe that's Easter week, uh, so we have, a, have one Wednesday off uh, along the way here, okay? Realize that, uh, just sort of, it's a little bit of a background here, so just so you know what you're getting into. Just want to make sure you're warned. Uh, this this series here, of which we're on number five, was was initially designed or conceived as a as a program for men who wanted to aspire to leadership positions within the church. And the idea is that a person in that situation uh, should be well equipped, uh, have have a mastery over his system of theology. And so what we designed this course to be is pretty much a seminary course. Okay, so master's level, uh, this is, we're not going to pull any punches here. Uh, if, you, if you don't understand what I'm saying, ask, I'll try and clarify it. At the same time, realize that this is, this is not an entry-level class. Uh, so if you were looking for, for that, um, I just want you to be aware of that. Uh, before we even start, so that uh, if you're saying, you know, I, I need something a little bit more basic, no one will hold anything against you if you say, okay, I'll, I'll come back here in a few years uh, after I'm ready for it. So just, just be aware of that. Um, this, is, this is sort of an advanced class, if I can put it that way. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the decision was made by, your, by your, your elders that just because it's designed for people aspiring to uh, leadership positions in the church doesn't mean that those are the only people who are capable of comprehending it. So that's why we opened it up uh, to the to the, the whole of the whole of the church. So that's just, just sort of a let you know what we're doing. There's a textbook. I, it, we'll say it's an optional textbook. Those of you who were in the original little group there that is doing this in order to... to uh, meet some requirements for leadership within the church. This is not an optional textbook. It's a, something that's expected for you to read. It's not a particularly difficult book, but Anthony Hokemus created in God's image. I think, I think it still looks like this. I've had this for quite a number of years here, but uh, it's a little bit faded, but I think it still looks like this. Uh, but uh, I think it's a really nice introduction here uh, to uh, specifically anthropology and doctrine of sin. I don't really have a, a, a book for angels. I mean, if you will work through a bibliography and you can find some reading along the way if you want to, but uh, I'm not going to make that a required thing. Okay, so if you're taking it for uh, for that, you'll need to you'll need to you'll need to read that book. Um, what I've got here is a sign up. If you would like to purchase this book. Um, I'm going to hand, send this around. Fifteen dollars. You sign up for it tonight. Uh, we'll get. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that those books are in hand next week, probably next week. Uh, bring your fifteen dollars, and you can you can get your copy. If you don't want it, you might just pass this along. Um, but uh, you are 
there is a little discount there, so uh, you'll you'll actually be paying just a few pennies less than the uh, church is paying for it. So you're getting it's part of where your dues are going to here. So uh, hopefully that's uh, something that you can use. We'll also have, in addition to this reading, um, uh, a little quiz every week. Um, I won't actually collect the quiz. It's really just designed here to sort of refresh uh, ourselves as to where we are in the course of the notes and and to understand and and see if there are any points of that we that we sort of blundered the week before and didn't quite get the material across. Uh, so that'll be a bit of a review, and uh, and uh, you'll, you'll get a chance to see how well you've you've uh, picked up on the material we covered. Uh, so that's the plan. Any uh, questions about where we're headed with this? It's a little longer in the spring than it is in the uh, in the fall. So we had eleven weeks in the fall, so fourteen weeks here in the spring. That's why we were able to squeeze the angels in here. How many angels can fit into a into a, uh, that's the joke, right? How many angels on the head of a pen? Okay. Is that a question, Rich? I was just going to ask you, the author of the book, is any relation to Randy Hakama? It's actually spelled a little differently. Oh, is it? Yeah, this is Hokama, and his name is Hakama. I, I, there's no E in gotcha. Randy Hakama. It's kind of an unusual name, so it's not Well, it's a Dutch Calvinist name. So he's, 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 he's Dutch Reformed. Uh, so usually, if you if you see K's in the name, it's that's sort of a, a signal you've got somebody that's Dutch. They have they have they have K's all through their language. I'm not sure how they use them all, but yeah. So Hokuma's a Dutch reformed. Okay. Anything else? If not, then you should have anybody not have one of these uh, sets of notes here. I think everybody got one as they came in, but if not. Holler now. And we'll go ahead and get a start on this. And uh, we're not in a hurry yet. Sometimes towards the end of the semester, we're in a rush to get it done. But we'll, we'll keep a nice slow pace until we need to speed it up. So the doctrine of man, doctrine of humanity, I guess, is a little bit more politically correct. But uh, doctrine of mankind Doctrine of Humanity is our first topic. Now, I started out by pointing out that, you know, sometimes this kind of a class is not the most popular one. You know, last year, last week, last, last semester, Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that's pretty interesting. Uh, doctrine of Man and Sin aren't usually the, uh, the, the page turners, the ones that really bring the people out, and I understand that, uh, because we're, we're more concerned about the major Questions of Scripture. At the same time, doctrine of man asks and answers some of the most basic questions of philosophy that are out there, right? Okay, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Why am I the way that I am? And perhaps the uh, important question after you answer that one is, is there a way I can change, right? Okay, these are some of the very most basic questions that mankind faces on a on a on a on a on a daily yearly basis we ask these questions of ourselves this is a very important topic and and uh, even though we do study the doctrine of scripture first uh, because god is 
if we're going to really know who we are, uh, we have to know who we are relative to who uh, to who God is. Uh, so it is a. It's a I'll have another one. Okay. Okay. So it is an important topic, and I hope it's something. Obviously, by the fact that you're here, means that you're interested in it. I do have a short bibliography here, and I don't want to spend too much time in it. Uh, if you took the seminary class, it's a longer one, but uh, uh, just a few things. Now, some of these are some um, books that you might want to, uh, depending on, on conversations you have with people in, in, in your, uh, in, as you go through life, some of these books might become helpful to you. But let's, just, uh, let's just put a few of them out here. Uh, G.C. Burkhauer, Man, the Image of God, I think is an outstanding uh, book on anthropology. It probably would rank up there number two if I was going to choose a textbook. It's a little headier, a little heavier than the one that you're, you're reading, but an outstanding one. Uh, I had already mentioned here Thomas Boston, Human Nature and its Fourfold State. The Puritans were a very incisive bunch. And uh, this this uh, book here uh, on the fourfold state of man, I think, is is no exception to that. Jonathan Edwards, classic book here on the freedom of the will. Uh, one of the questions that often comes up is, do we have freedom? Do we as humans have freedom? And in what sense do we have freedom? If we have freedom, is, does that mean that God doesn't? Uh, how, how does that work? And Jonathan Edwards, I think, has a tremendous model here for understanding how we should recognize our wills uh, relative to the decree of God in which he is sovereign. I also have a book here uh, by Robert Gagnon, Gagnon, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics, and uh, even though it's already 19 years old there, this is still considered the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the go-to text uh, for understanding the uh, key passages of Scripture relative to a very pertinent question and problem that we're facing in society today. So if you really want to understand what the Bible has to say about this question, this is one of the, the more thorough treatments here. And I'd recommend that you take a look at that if uh, that's uh, something that's coming up in in people that in, in, the, in the lives that you live and people you interact with. There's your your textbook, Anthony Hokema, created in God's image. Philip Edgecombe Hughes again is another excellent text here on the doctrine of man. David Instone Brewer. Together with B. Ward Powers, a little further down in the list, probably write the definitive works on the Old Testament and New Testament treatments of the question of divorce and remarriage. I mean, there's obviously a lot of books out there on the topic, a lot of popular books, uh, but I, I put these two in because I think they probably together uh, deal with the Old Testament and New Testament texts uh, more thoroughly and dispassionately uh, than any other uh, that I can point to. 
So I, I, I heartily recommend those. And again, this is an issue that comes up routinely, of course, in the life of the church and in the, in the world in which we live. So uh, if, if that's a question that you need to address and, and, and uh, you know, bone up on, these are some good sources for you. J. Gresham Machen, The Christian View of Man, is uh, sort of an entry-level uh, book into this. It actually was originally di- delivered back in the 1930s as a, as a, as a series of radio broadcasts, uh, back when you could re- hear something like this on the radio. Uh, so, uh, but uh, excellent, uh, excellent treatment here. I have uh, Piper and Grudem here, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, this is a question that is, again, on the, on the forefront of a lot of people's minds uh, in the world in which we live. How are men and women to relate to one another, whether that be in the home, whether that be in the church, whether that be in society at large? And this can be a delicate topic, uh, but it needn't be because the scriptures are, are speak clearly, and so we don't have to be apologetic about it, although I recognize that uh, what the scriptures say is not always popular. Uh, in the world in which we live. Okay? So that's just a short list of, of some books on the doctrine of man if you want to sort of branch out a little bit further and some of the topics we'll talk about in this class. Uh, I always want to, I, I never get a, I never get a, a taker on this, but are there any books here that you're, you're looking for and wonder about? Uh, or any further question on what's here? Yes, sir. The last one. Yeah, um, yeah. Humanity and sin. It's. I, I thought about putting it on. I, it, it is another sturdy book on on anthropology. I think uh, it's probably on my list of favorites. It would be at the bottom of it, but uh, but it's a uh, but it's a helpful treat. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Well, let's start where we would expect to. The origin of man. Where do people come from? And a discussion of who or what man is depends largely on where he came from. If indeed man has evolved from lower forms of life, as is widely held today, then people are very little different from animals in their constitution. And in fact, we have little or no relationship with God, or what what relationship we have with God is very distant and far removed. And with that distance comes an absence of responsibility. And I think in many ways that's the, the goal of evolution, right? That by creating deep space and deep time, we create distance from any God that might happen to be there. Um, and by creating that distance, we also remove his sovereignty over us and our responsibility to him. Uh, but, as we are going to see, that is not where mankind comes from. Since we have been uniquely created by God in God's image, then something far different may be said about our being and function. I'll just let you know right now, I use man in a generic sense, if that bothers you, I apologize for it, but it's the whole notes are like that. So I 
I'm not going to just apologize every time. Uh, so uh, that's that's what I mean. It's just the generic use of man here. It's the way we always used to speak back in the olden days before it became politically incorrect to do so. so okay. So where did the first humans come from? Well, the first man, and I can use man this time, was created supernaturally and directly. Find this clearly stated in the book of Genesis. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. We'll spend a lot of time talking about what is meant by being created in the image of God, but for now we're just concentrating on the fact that we are created. Okay, we are created by God. Okay, and uh, this was a there was a decision by God to immediately and directly create God um, without any sort of intermediating events or material. Uh, Genesis two. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Just a couple of new faces walked in here, so let me just distribute these here. There you go. Did you get one? And, of course, that's not, not the only text that we have, um, but uh, I think those are enough to uh, make the case rather definitively that God created humans. And how did God create us? And uh, We get some details. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not just that he's responsible for us in some sort of abstract sense, but he actually gives details. Like the rest of the creation events in Genesis 1, man was created by divine impulse, as part of their let there be, it was so sequence, right? You know, let there be light, poof, there was light. Okay, and so this, this sequence goes throughout. You, you read through it all through the whole uh, first chapter of Genesis, and there's no, there's no appreciable difference uh, between that uh, that we see throughout the week and what happens here with mankind. Now, God does become a little bit more intimate in his creation of mankind, but it's no less direct or immediate, right? Because he, he actually shapes us with his hands, as it were. Uh, so there, you can, you can feel that sort of sense of intimacy. This is, this is where something God is really careful and, 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 is, and is personally involved in the, in the creation of mankind, gives you a sense of where we fall within the pecking order of uh, creation. Nonetheless, we have to say it's all part of this sequence here. Okay, so let there be, it was so. A single solar day, the sixth day. There's no room in the language for gaps or elongated days, progression, or any other provision for evolutionary development. We talked about that in the, the first session here of Systematic One. Uh, we can open that up if you'd really like to, but uh, I think it's fairly clear that to an ordinary reader uh, that that is what is intended that these days had evening and morning, 
It's like an ordinary day. They had ordinals, you know, first day, second day, third day. So you look through the scriptures, there's something like 200 uses of the, the ordinal with day, first, second, third. And there's only one among those 200 that's anything other than a than an ordinary day. And, of course, Exodus 20, 11, really our go-to text here, uh, because it's, this is the establishment of the fourth command. And we find here uh, that we are, to, that uh, well, the Israelites were to honor or observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shouldn't do any work on it. Why? Because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Okay, so if that analogy is going to hold and have any meaning at all, it means that uh, just as you work six literal days, rest seventh, so God worked six literal days and rested seventh. The idea of elongating those into eons and and long periods of time, ages and epochs, uh, really makes uh, a, a mess of that analogy there. Okay? This verb here that's used, the word create, bara, is used exclusively of divine activity in the Old Testament. There is no room for intermediate agency. It's not as though he just put the, uh, the, the pieces in place and just waited for it to sort of develop on its own. Uh, this is, is a very active verb used by God. It doesn't necessarily mean that man was made ex nihilo. You see here that phrase sometimes. Sometimes perhaps we use it a little carelessly. Uh, ex nihilo means out of nothing. Technically man is not made out of nothing. He's made out of dirt. Uh, but uh, nonetheless it's, it's no less a miracle uh, for that fact. Okay? Other verbs employed uh, use uh, imply direct immediate creation as well. God formed man out of the dust. Yes. Uh, we've been reminded the last few days, you know, you can take a, like a little bit of snow and make a little snowman. It's sort of a picture I have in my mind uh, that God, he, he's, he's very intimately involved in this. He, he's really careful with this one. And breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life uh, so that he could become a living being. So again, this... Uh, I mean, I don't want to make too much of this, but there's a, there's a, there's an intimacy, there's an imminence. Uh, God is 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 deeply and intimately concerned about this climax of the creation week. It's really important. So his body is made from previously existing material, dirt, dust. Uh, now this does not um, make his creation anything less than supernatural. Uh, in fact, if you think about it, really the only the only thing that was made ex nihilo was Genesis 1. God made the primordial material, and then from it emerges uh, the rest of the material. The ground brings forth trees and such. Uh, so this is, this is true not only of Adam, but uh, the rest of the creation as well. Um, but the fact that these verbs are used, again, implies some greater intimacy then is implied by the less personal fiat creation. Let there be, bang, it happened, which sort of distances God from it. Uh, God is uh, very intimately involved here. He doesn't say, let there be man, and there was man, uh, but rather, let us make man, and he made man. Okay. The fact that Adam is made out of dust is probably not 
you know, there's there's not any typological significance to that. I think probably the idea is that we're not made out of anything particularly special here. Ordinary soil. In no way should you can this imply, as some suggest, some sort of an animal ancestry. You know, the the animals are born and die and born and die, and somehow we emerge from that sequence there. Um, that's that's not what is meant by being from the dust, nor, in fact, would that even make sense uh, in view of the fact that we are told that we return to dust, right? Okay. Uh, and uh, so, so we're made out of ordinary dirt, and our immaterial then was imparted directly to us by the breath of God. So we're, we're going to see here that mankind is fundamentally uh, two parts. Okay? There is a material part, there is an immaterial part. God takes the material and creates the body, and then he breathes into that formed thing, and breathes into the, the breath of life, and man becomes a living being. So now he has not only a material part, but also an immaterial part. Probably shouldn't think too much of that as that we somehow have a spark of divinity in us. I, I, I don't think that's really the implication here, is, but we are given by God our immaterial. Okay? So that's the first man, Adam. So where did Eve come from? Well, Eve was likewise created supernaturally and directly, but a little bit differently. And there's some reasons for that. We start by looking at Genesis 1.27 and we discover that male and female, God created them. Genesis 2, we get the details of where Eve comes from. Of course, this comes after a sequence of whereby Adam names all of the animals and he sees Mr. and Mrs. Horse and Mr. and Mrs. Cow and Mr. and Mrs. Pig and he says there's just Mr. Me. Okay, where's 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 Mrs. Human? Okay, and uh, so we find then that God puts a sleep, he puts him to sleep, and God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man, and the man said, "This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, that is from man, because she was taken." out of man, okay? We'll, we'll see some of the significance of this in just a little bit. Man, man, Adam, is here responsible for the totality of the creation, uh, and we're going to see here, you know, Eve is the first one who sins, right? She's the one who, who eats first, gives it to her husband, and he eats, and yet we find consistently through the scripture that responsibility for this initial sin is not laid on Eve, but rather on Adam, um, because we are all from Adam. Okay? Even Eve is from Adam, as improbable as that might seem. The woman, the first woman, comes from Adam, and he had uh, within himself, he represented every being that would come after him. Okay, we should recognize here very clearly. Uh, we haven't decided. We haven't really determined exactly what God's image is yet. Uh, but but what becomes very clear from Genesis one and two is that both men and women are equally in the image of God. 
course, God is pure spirit. He doesn't have body parts, per se. He's neither male nor female. Of course, there's a preference in the scripture writers for male gender references to God, but that's not based on physical considerations. God has no physical form, per se. Still, since God's functional relationship to his creation is that of ruling and leading, these are operations that align with the male function within the family unit and within the church. Uh, we'll get to that in more, uh, in more detail later, but 1 Corinthians 11 makes that very clear. Just as, uh, just as there's a woman and over her is Adam, over Adam is Christ, and over Christ is God the Father. And so there's this, this hierarchy that's established here, and uh, we shouldn't uh, be troubled by that. I know it, it's, again, it's part of the curse uh, that women resent uh, their place within that structure, but we shouldn't think that that necessarily, that that, that means that they are somehow lesser than or, un- more, or less important than or less human than uh, men. That's not the point at all. Any more than Christ is less God than the Father. Okay? Uh, so, uh, you know, when you when you sort of get that uh, feeling in you, ladies, uh, that I don't really, I sort of resent where I am in the pecking order. Think, you know, it's exactly like Christ is to the Father. And uh, we shouldn't think of anything less of Christ uh, because of his relationship uh, to the Father. Um, it's apparently for this reason that the scripture writers, under inspiration, consistently reference God as though male, uh, though God is sometimes described as having motherly qualities. He's like a mother hen that gathers her chicks under her wings. His predominant functions are masculine in nature. But this doesn't mean, don't, don't take that to mean in any sense that men, women are any less the image of God than men are. So whatever we're going to say here, don't imagine me saying that women are less important, uh, less significant, uh, less in value. That's, that's never the point that's uh, being made here uh, on this. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit this because I know this can be a touchy topic. Uh, but we, we want to we want to we want to have a biblical anthropology, uh, not a cultural anthropology. Lots of, you can you can go to any university and study <coughs> cultural anthropology. What we're talking about here is biblical anthropology, and uh, and to it we must submit even if there are some uh, wrinkles there that are are less than uh, desirable. We think. I say here, um, Eve had biological solidarity with Adam, even though God formed her directly. Their solidarity within the human race is going to become very important to us uh, because, as Hebrews 2 tells us, the reason that Jesus was able to enter into the human race and have solidarity with all of us, die for all of us, and, and, and have his righteousness imputed uh, broadly is because there is a connectivity that exists within mankind. Okay, So even though Eve was created by God, Adam was created by God, the fact that God used the material that was already in Adam in order to create Eve means that even Eve had solidarity with her husband, 
even though she was never born uh, to him. Okay. So she was created from Adam's rib and not from the dust of the ground. She was she didn't have an, a, a complete, completely independent existence uh, from her husband. Had she been entirely independent of Adam, she would have stood equal with Adam as the head of the human race. And though she was not seminally in Adam, she still was represented by him. And so he is, he was her head with all of the privilege and with all of the responsibility, right? So 1 Corinthians 11, man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man, ultimately. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now we're going to go to meddling here, because Genesis 2 does, right? Okay. Next point here, Eve was created for Adam. For Adam. The Lord said, Genesis 2, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper. A helper suitable for him. Some, it's a little pet peeve of mine. Uh, people talk about women being the helpmate. Um, okay, if, if you're familiar with the King James... Uh, it says that the woman was a help, a help meet for him. Okay, the word old, the, it's, this is, that's an old English word. Meet is appropriate to. So it was a helper suitable to or appropriate to. Help meet or help meet is not a, a word. It was never intended to be a, a title. Uh, so so it's a helper suitable. So look at your modern translation. I think it gets it a little clearer for you. Okay, so uh, so she is a helper who is suitable to him, corresponding to him. The man had given names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper that was suitable to him. So the Lord took one of his ribs and fashioned it into a woman, into a woman, the rib, rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to him. Okay? So she is described here in these terms as a helper, a complement to the man. Now, the correspondence that Adam sought and received was more than physical. It is that. You know, it's, it's, there has to be someone who is like him in order for procreation and the like. So it included the physical, but it also met his need for someone who could complement him in every way. She could compliment him intellectually, emotionally, personally, and could supplement him functionally. Okay? So in, it, it, the, the whole idea is here is not that she is beneath him. In her essence, she is equal to him. In her function, though, she is subordinate to him. And so Eve then provides him with a domain worthy of his stature as king of the earth. That's how he's described it in uh, Psalm chapter 8. Adam is the king of the earth, and she is a suitable queen. And while Adam was made, and was ever so briefly, without deficiency, he could not fulfill his divine destiny alone. She was absolutely necessary to his success. So what are some implications of that? Uh, for 
for for the world in which we live. Well, I've got uh, several here. I've got four of them listed, and we'll see if we can't walk through. I think we'll probably get through uh, most, if not all, of them. Okay, so four major significant uh, implications of the way that God created mankind. Well, firstly, and we sort of already touched on this, is that there is solidarity within the human race, and Adam is our representative head. And we find this again in 1 Corinthians 11. Man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Man had his birth, though, through the woman. Okay, so and so the point being that all persons are interconnected. We're all relatives one of another. Okay, however distant, however remote, we are all relatives of one another through Adam and ultimately through Noah as well, because the uh, the human race reduced rather uh, rather small at that at, at that point as well. Acts seventeen makes this very clear as well. God made from one man every nation of mankind. And so, there's a physical, a material unity between all persons, but also a spiritual unity uh, that is based on this, uh, this fact that he is, is physically prior to all of us. All of humanity are, can be described, as 1 Corinthians does, right? We are all in Adam. And for that reason... 1 Corinthians tells us we received we received depraved souls from Adam because you know when Seth was born you know Adam and Eve created a child in their image and the image here is a is a is a soiled image a broken image here and so we receive our de- depraved souls by means of human procreation. We'll talk about this as well. And however, while, while Eve technically sinned first, it was Adam who was charged with the responsibility for that inherited depravity. He was God's appointed representative for mankind, apparently, because he was created first, was manifestly responsible for Eve and sinned willfully. Why do I say that? Well, look at what 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 says about this this situation. It's all within this context of the place of the woman in the church service. A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. She must be silent, at least in that context, because, here's the reason, here's the the reason that God gives, because Adam was formed first, then Eve, that's the first reason, because Adam was prior. Secondly, because Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, Okay, and 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 don't hear don't 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 hear that as you know the the woman was naive, but rather the man was willful in his sin. He knew exactly and precisely what he was doing, um, and and so so his his guilt was the greater one because he knew what he was doing. He sinned willfully and sort of oversaw the sin of his wife. So he ends up being responsible not only for his own sin, but in some sense for her sin as well. So because he was created first, 
was manifestly responsible for her and sinned willfully. Adam is the representative of the sinful race. And so when we, when we look at our sinful condition and we trace it back to its origin, we don't blame Eve. We could. Uh, she sinned first. But we don't because the scriptures don't blame her. They blame him. Okay. So there's a solidarity of the human race and Adam is the representative head. Now there's further implications that we're going to see as we work our way through the course, but for now, uh, that's uh, that's as far as far as we'll go. Questions or thoughts? I, I, by the way, I, I, I do, I should, should say right up here up front, uh, anytime you don't get it, wave your hand. We, we can uh, have that conversation. I have a, I have a habit of getting into a, into a, on a roll here. Uh, but if you have a question, wave your hand. I always, I always like. I feel that people learn more when they're asking questions because uh, they're getting that itch scratched. So uh, feel free to interrupt anytime you want to. Okay. So the solidarity of the human race and the fact that Adam is the representative head is made clear by the method uh, through which God created us. Secondly, there's a functional headship of men over women. Okay, and we were, were just in this passage here in 1 Timothy 2. I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet in the formal worship setting because it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. Okay, it's important to note here that the roles of ruling and leading for men and submitting and helping for women are not a result of the fall. I think we sometimes assume that. You know, that, that sort of men became dominant and women became submissive as a result of the fall, but that's not it at all. It has to do with the ordering within the creation uh, process here. Now, I will say this, of course, that since the fall, man has become abusive in his ruling function. He tends to rule poorly, uh, arrogantly, uh, with a heavy hand. And so that's, that's the curse that falls upon the woman. And, you know, women tend along the way to resent their submissiveness, their, their role, and, and seek to you know, come over top of the man. That is man's curse. Okay, that's the, the, the there's a mutual curse here. Uh, nonetheless, the original state here of ruling and leading for men, submitting and helping for women, are not a result of the fall. Okay? The functional hierarchy of men over women in the family and in the church does not imply superiority of personal value. Not as though men are worth more, does not mean that they're smarter. Not as though there's an intellectual acumen here that accrues to men and not to women. It doesn't mean that there's any greater spiritual vitality among men than there are than there is among women. Men are not better than women any more than your governors are better uh, than you. You know, Trump is not a better person because he's the president. He's just a person. Okay, he does have authority over us, but he's not better than we are. 
I don't think there's any question on that, you know. <laughs> uh, employers are not better than their employees just because they have governance over them. In fact, when Paul describes the functional inequality of men and women, he compares it to the functional inequality of the members of the Godhead. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. Okay, so, so he sets up, so he sets up a, uh, a, a hierarchy here that, that we shouldn't miss. Now here's the father. He exercises oversight over the son, who exercises oversight over man, who exercises oversight over woman. And so if you see that sequence, uh, the, the argument that Paul is making, just because a woman is is under man within the hierarchy doesn't mean that she is less than man any more than the son is less than the father. The uh, son doesn't lose anything because of the of the hierarchy that exists within the Trinity. And so that's uh, perhaps some consolation here as you as you read this material. So unless we're prepared to say that the father is personally superior to the son, we cannot conclude that men are personally superior to women. The eternal nature of the functional subordination of the son to the father has in recent days have become a matter of consternation and a lot of debate here. Still, we remain emphatic that economic inequality is not of a kind with ontological inequality just because... Um, just because there is a hierarchy, a ranking uh, in terms of economy, in, in, in terms of function, does not mean that there is inequality in terms of essence or value. Questions on that? We'll probably come back to that a little bit more too, but uh, I, think it's a, I think it is an important implication that we see uh, from uh, the, uh, the creation and, and how it's done. So what is the true dignity of womanhood? Well, though the woman is just as as much a being in God's image as the man is, men and women do not realize their true dignity in the same way. Men are designed, programmed, built to realize their dignity through ruling and working. That's what we said that's that's the that's the responsibility that God gave uniquely to men to rule and to work in the created realm at large. Women are physiologically, neurologically, psychologically distinct. I don't think I have to make that argument. It's kind of obvious here, although sometimes there's debate about that. And have been purposely designed by God as weaker, more dependent, more docile and more subjective relational than men are. Okay, That doesn't mean they're less. In fact, I'm so glad my wife is that way because it takes off those raw, rough edges uh, that uh, would make me almost useless uh, if I didn't have her, right? The greatest dignity a, man can, a woman can achieve in society is in the complementary, supporting, commiserative contribution that is to... Uh, to come along and emote alongside us that she makes within her relationships both with her children and with her husband 
and also to her extended family. All this is detailed in the pastoral epistles. Also with the with relationship to the church. And I think in, in a sense in society in general. I don't want to go too far with that because I, I think uh, when Paul has this discussion, he has two contexts in view. One is the church. One is the family. Nonetheless, there does seem to be, uh, even within society general, uh, in society generally, a a a, um, a place for men and women. Now, anti-Christian culture rejects this, claiming that the biblical view of womanhood demeans her. But the Bible responds to the contrary: that society has robbed woman of her dignity by discrediting her God-given station. Now, a couple of sort of follow-up questions here that perhaps are lingering. What does the Bible mean when it describes women as weaker than men? Well, it goes without saying. I think it's pretty obvious here, but women, by their physiological design, are, in general, weaker physically than men. I say in general because there are glaring exceptions here along the way. But in general, that's true. I don't think there's any debate here that we can have. But Peter probably was not restricting his comments to physical weakness based on the comments he makes. So coupling his uh, his comments with Paul in in 1 Timothy 2, it would seem that the apostles viewed this weakness as connected with the ruling or decision-making function. The operative illustration here is found in 1 Timothy 2. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. I try and be careful here with my wording. I'm probably going to read here just because I don't want to get this wrong. Eve's weakness is apparently connected with her native docility. She's, she's, she's a compliant. She's, she's designed to be compliant. Her sensitivity which caused her to sin under the duress of deception. She she is trying to please. Adam, on the other hand, was not so deceived and sinned willfully and deliberately. While the more impassive nature of man renders him in general more emotionally detached and relationally insensitive than women, and I get a great amen here from the women, right? They're emotionally detached, relationally insensitive, uh, that's, that's what we are. But it also renders us, men, in general, more objective and calculating in our decisions, convictions, actions, less susceptible to de- deception in our subjective sensibilities. These latter qualities are invaluable in all lever- levels of leadership, whether we're talking military, economic, political, or pastoral. And it's for this reason, that's the grammar of 1 Timothy 2, that God restricts the highest leadership and teaching positions in the church to men, okay? Maybe I can give an illustration of this, okay? It's a, it's, a, it's a question I've been asking for years in classes like this. Yeah, how, how, many, of you, how many of you think that babies that died uh, before they reached the age of accountability, how many of you think they, they could possibly go to hell? Okay, two, three. I only see three hands. Usually I get a few more than that. But the, the pattern at least held. No women raised their hands. <laughs> but why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a sense in which men have that ability to objectify uh, those, those little ones. Okay? 
and we can and 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 perhaps not have that subjective attachment there that says no way there's no possible way that that little baby could possibly go to hell and uh, and so that the pattern has has typically been men have a have an ability to objectify certain things that women can't which i think you know generally in in military settings men are able to send you know older men are able to send younger men to their death um, and uh it's it's a lot more difficult uh, for a woman to do that and i'm so glad it is honestly you shouldn't think of that as a weakness okay it is it is it is a complementary uh, function that is is had here okay One last question on this, and I'll open it up again. Question, are there grounds based on the passages above that assign subordinate role to women in church and home for restricting the function of men in society uh, general? So should we, should, we, should we say that men are to be always in charge at all places and all times? I say, well, it's undeniable that certain roles in society are generally better suited to men, and others, generally speaking, are better suited to women. The biblical implication that men and women find their dignity and fulfillment differently sort of comes to bear as well. There's no further biblical mandate to restrict the function of men and women due to gender. So I don't think we can make a case from the scriptures themselves uh, that uh, women have specific places in society that they cannot rule. Uh, you know, you know, Margaret Thatcher was, you know, a wicked woman for a ruling. I don't think we can make that case. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, perhaps there are some implications there, but I don't see any biblical mandate here that says uh, that within society, general, generally, uh, that men, all men, are somehow over all women. That's that's. I don't think that's an implication we can draw. Questions on that? I know that's a touchy topic here. Uh, maybe I, I winnowed the number for next week here. But uh, thoughts or questions? Pushback? I'm happy with it. Right. Yeah. So, so one of your first comments was that, and maybe it's just the way you said it, but, but it helped me understand it right. You said that uh, Mr. Human was looking around for Mrs. Human. Mr. Cow and Mrs. Cow. So I guess what I'm asking is then man was created with then a need for a woman. So when man was created, there, there was a hole. Yeah. There was a, there was a missing part. Right. And God planned on, he didn't create man the way he should be. Right. So, then a man needs to marry. Uh, maybe you're going to get to this part. So, a man needs to get married, and a woman needs to find a man, and a man needs to find a woman. That's God's design. Um, what, what about men who? What about men who who don't find women, or women who don't find men? Is that then? How does that fit into God's plan? If He created us to be together, yeah. How does it not work? 
Well, I mean, First Corinthians does imply that there are those who God has designed to remain sinful in His plan. This is this is this is not something that if you do not find a woman, that somehow you are sinning, or if you're a woman who does not find a man, somehow you are sinning. It does, I think, create a powerful impetus for saying that marriage is the norm. It should be sought pretty much by everybody and, and in general early on because that is that is a need that both sides have men need women women need men and, and the sooner you can you know, pair up in, in, in marriage in, in a marriage setting um, I think in general better off societies than be and it is, it is troubling to see the decline you know, the celebration is divorce rates are down, yay, but that's because nobody's getting married. Uh, that's not a particularly great victory we achieved there. So, yeah. Other thoughts? Okay. Next point here, another implication here of the way that God created Mankind, this one perhaps a little more of an ew kind of a topic. Nonetheless, it's probably one that uh, we can breathe a little bit easier on because I think we probably have broad agreement here on the topic, right? The unnaturality of homosexuality. It, it's just amazing that I'd have to make an argument here, but let me just make the statement and hopefully there's good agreement here. A woman is the only valid counterpart for a man. Neither an animal nor another man would have been suitable or compatible with him. Neither one could assist man in his original mandate to be fruitful. This is a duh statement here, right? Multiply and fill the earth. That's the only way it could be done. Man and a woman. For this reason... The Bible roundly commend, condemns, not commends, condemns all forms of bestiality, men having relations with animals, lesbianism, women having relationships with women, and homosexuality, by which broadly I mean men having relations with men. They're unnatural. In fact, that's the term that's used in Romans 1. It just doesn't make any sense in view of what we know about the creation. It's nonsense. It's a product of a rejection of our Creator. In fact, that, 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 that's made quite clear in Romans chapter 1. If there's any question here, it's, it's quite clear. Now, so, uh, so they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They, they, God gave them over to their sinful desires, and they, and they took it and ran with it. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them further over to shameful lusts. And I think we can make a case here uh, that in some sense there are some sins that are worse than others. Because God gives them over further to worse sins. Even their women exchanged natural the way he words it even their women exchanged natural relationships to unnatural ones 
In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with unnatural lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversions. Okay? So it's unnatural. I think physiologically that's an obvious point. Okay, but I think it even goes uh, beyond that. It, it, it doesn't fit God's expectation for the human race. God created us. He had a specific design for us. He has a goal for us. We don't have the liberty to decide we're going to do something else. Okay, This is what God designed us to do. So it's unnatural, not only physiologically, but philosophically. Uh, because it, it, it violates everything that God says we ought to be doing. So just a few notes here towards this theology of homosexuality. It's not going to be a comprehensive treatment of the topic uh, that uh, we're not going to attempt to do here. But some, some, some points, five points here, that I hope we have absolute agreement on here in this room. One, homosexuality is a sin. Uh, Romans 1, we just looked at, makes that very clear. 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy have sin lists on which homosexuality appear. The law has, the Mosaic law has specific principles that tell us that this kind of a, of a crime is not only wrong, but it's a capital crime. It's an interesting, it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic when we talk about I don't know. I did a study a few years ago on capital crimes in the Old Testament, and and I was I was wondering what is it that ties them all together? Uh, because sometimes you, you, you seem sometimes that you work your way through the Old Testament, some of these things seem a little bit arbitrary or capricious. Why why is this one a capital crime and this one isn't? Well, the capital crimes, if I can say, are crimes of significance. But thing that ties them all together is that it is destructive. All of the crimes that are capital crimes are destructive of the human race. Okay? So murder, obviously, destructive of the human race. Adultery, which destroys the very fabric of humanity and destroys families. This is the basic unit of human society. Adultery destroys that. So adultery is a capital crime. Uh, the, 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 uh, the crime of homosexuality is also listed among these as a capital crime because it's destructive of humanity. Um, and so that, that's the thing that actually ties them all together. The only other category we have out there are crimes that are that are blasphemy against God himself, uh, which obviously in general are is destructive of humanity. Uh, but those, those are basically the two categories of, of capital crimes in the Old Testament. Uh, those, who are, those who are directly against God and those that are directly destructive of the human race, and this is this is one of them. And that's why that's why it appears uh, as it does in the Old Testament. Homosexuality is a sin, and it is an advanced sin. Not only does the language of Roman one imply that God gave them over, then God gave them over again. So it's a sin to which people graduate as their native depravity deepens. It is also classified here in the Mosaic economy as a capital crime. 
Number three, as with all sins, both, homo, both homosexual desire and homosexual acts are alike sinful. I think that's in principle. We see that all through the book of Matthew. Uh, is it? Is it? You know, that the question is, um, is it okay to hate people? And the answer is no. Why? Because the law says thou shalt not kill. You say, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. What's the connection here? Well, hating is the sin that leads to killing. Okay? So then the question is asked, is it okay to lust? No, because adultery is bad. And those who lust commit in their hearts and their minds what they eventually graduate to in a, in a physical sense, a material sense. And so the idea that the homosexual act is wrong while the desire to act homosexually is not really violates, I think, the whole principle there of Matthew 5. Uh, that it, the, the, the sin is committed in the mind before it is committed in the flesh. Now, that does not mean that someone who stops it in the mind and, and the person who continues and does it in the flesh are one and the same. Nonetheless, both have committed some degree a sin. Okay? So acting on a sinful desire is more sinful than merely having the desire, but the fact remains that both the desire of to sin and the act of sinful uh, the act of sin are alike that shouldn't be a sinful uh, are alike punishable and are alike the object of Christian mortification. So it makes no substantial difference further whether homosexual tendencies are genetically inherited and with one with which one is born. Honestly, I'm not going to... I I honestly don't have a strong opinion here. It seems to me that uh, there have been some studies that suggest that one can be born with a proclivity to specific sins. Uh, It shouldn't really bother us because we're all born with proclivities to sin, right? That's what depravity is. It's a birth with a proclivity towards sin. Some of us have proclivities towards one sin or another, uh, where some of us are are inclined towards different sins. So uh, the fact that we are born with a proclivity to sin is really incidental to the fact that it's wrong. Okay, uh, even if so, we are born depraved, but that doesn't mean it it is that it's okay to be born that way. All humans are born with a general bent to sin, and it is likely that each of us inherits a unique blend of susceptibilities, tendencies, orientations, even addictions, with which we must wage war. And each one of us is different. Talk about the besetting sins that we have, and mine are different than yours are. We all have a little different twist to our personality. Uh, We're inclined, uh, whether that's uh, by birth or by... Our, our, our experiences, we're inclined towards specific kinds of sin. For some, that struggle includes homosexual tendencies. But this victimization certainly should evoke sympathy among the believing community, but never toleration. Okay? You know, Christ was moved by with compassion even by those who for, for those who are demon-possessed which apparently is a sin which involves some level of victimization, but it doesn't mean he tolerated it or was just fine with it. It still had to be dealt with, even though he had sympathy. And, that, and so, so hopefully you're, you're hearing that and what we're saying. Just because 
it is a sin and an advanced sin does not mean it cannot be met at some level. Sympathy, but not with toleration. Number four, there's no such thing as a Christian homosexual. homosexual. Bear me out here. Any more than there is a Christian liar or a Christian drunk or a Christian adulterer. Now, there are Christians who struggle with homosexual lusts, just as there are Christians who struggle with lying and drunkenness and more natural sexual lusts. But the power that these sins have over us has been definitively broken. Okay? I think this text is very important for us. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what some of you once were. But you're not anymore, right? You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so, you know, it is is correct to look at an unbeliever and say, that person is a drunkard. That person is a... Is a is a is, is an immoral person or any number of these of these. He's a greedy person. But what happens at salvation, at regeneration, is that we become new creatures in Christ. Now the remnants of sin still tug at us, but we are fundamentally new in Christ. And so uh, the the idea that you know I'm I'm just a homosexual at heart doesn't fly. It's something that God has equipped the believer to combat and that's what we are that, that you know and I don't know perhaps there's somebody in this room who is who is in that category um, and my encouragement to you is fight it fight it just like you would fight any other sin because God has made it possible for you to do so and that's the expectation that God has and so hopefully that even though I'm I'm you know a bit towards this as because our society has become quite accepting of it I, that, I, that where I'm not saying that there can be no compassion or no victory here in fact there is uh, that uh, hope for every believer who is sit there uh, uh, who, who is in that category so number five that's the, the summary here no sin including homosexuality renders a person irremediable as the text above emphatically implies, the power of regenerating grace is overwhelmingly greater than the power of sin. Okay. Any questions on that? I know that's a burning topic in today's society. But yeah, I was just going to say, a few years ago we had a Pure Life Ministries come in, and one of the fellows gave a testimony. He, he was a, a tendency towards homosexuality, and he just said he had to have a constant accountability in his life sitting in that area. Yeah, so you can, anyone can have tendencies towards any sin, but a believer can never be content to remain that way. God's given us, with the new nature, the ability, the capacity to fight against the sins that beset us. Yeah. And we need to do that. And just because, and just because, probably most of you aren't don't have that as your besetting sin, doesn't mean that somehow 
you're better. You get your own sins to deal with. Believe me, right? Okay. It's just that perhaps you don't, by God's grace, you, you don't have that that you need to deal with. But you've got sins to deal with, so I don't don't imagine you're somehow better than, than someone else. Okay. Good first class, and uh, we'll uh, look forward to seeing you next week as we continue on in this perhaps some, some a little bit less heavy subjects. I know we start pretty pretty hot and heavy in this class here. Uh, hopefully, this gets a little bit uh, lighter as we as we move along. Yes. <laughs>